Part of the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. And when sin knocks at your door, to say no to it. The title of today's message comes from Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 10, down to verse 19. I've called it, Just Say No to Temptation. I don't want to make it sound oversimplified, that all you have to do is just say no, and it's all over, it goes away. It's easier said than done. There have been several campaigns over the years, just say no when it comes to sexual immorality, just say no to drugs. But it's more than just saying no. Temptation is very real. Satan is a very formidable enemy. There was a woman married to a miserly husband. Don't nudge your husbands, gals, at this point. It was hard for her to get anything she wanted. She always had to fight for everything. She told her husband, she said, Honey, I'm going shopping to the mall today. His response, Look, but don't buy. She says, Well, I'll just go window shopping. Well, she came home sometime later with a beautiful new dress. Her husband said, What's this? I told you to look and not to buy. She said, oh, honey, I know, but I saw this beautiful dress in the window, and I just went to try it on. And when I tried it on, the devil said, boy, that dress looks great on you. He said, right. Well, you should have said, get thee behind me, Satan. She said, I did. But when he got behind me, he said, you know, it looks good from the back, too. (laughs) You will be tempted. No matter what age, no matter what stage you are in in life, you will be tempted. Could be toys or candy as a kid, sensuality as a teenager. It might be monetary temptations when you're a little bit older and you're middle age. It could be power when you're yet a bit older. But it comes to all of us. And Satan has been doing it a long time. He has studied human nature so that he can tailor his appeal with greater skill than any ad agency. Because he knows our weak points, the Achilles heel, you might say, he is very aware of with each of us. These verses speak of temptation, how it works, and how to overcome it. And uh, let's just read from verse 10 onward to get an overview. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet Run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. We have some insight in those verses on just how temptation works 
And we have some insights on how to overcome temptation when it works. The theme of these verse, uh, verses 8-19 through 19 is enticing temptation that comes from your peer group. Enticing temptation that comes from your peers. And the advice is given on what to do when it comes. You know, throughout history, Christians have, I think, fought temptation on some pretty carnal fronts. They have tried to fight it in some preposterous ways that really hadn't helped them all that much. For instance, Origen, one of the early church fathers from Alexandria, Egypt, took literally the Scripture. When Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He took that so literally that to avoid falling into sexual temptation, he had himself castrated. Benedict, around the 4th century, to avoid falling into temptation, thought it's best to live in a cave with a shirt made out of rough, coarse hair. And for three years, he lived out in the wilderness that way. Then there were monks who decided that when they were tempted, they would dive into thorn bushes to distract them. That would do it. And they got the point, you might say. Many fine points. And though they were distracted, yet they were still tempted, though in pain at that point. Others would surround themselves with icons to simply ward away evil spirits. We have some insight here into how to deal with temptation. It begins with the premise, verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, say no. Do not consent. But we want to see this morning two things, and you can slice these verses into two. How temptation works and what to do when it comes. First of all, let's look at how temptation works or an anatomy of temptation. There are several things you will notice in these verses that talk about the progression of temptation. And I think it's important that we understand how it happens so that we know what stage of temptation we are at when we are tempted. Notice a few things. Beginning in verse 13, it begins with desire. There's four stages. Desire, the drawing away from that desire or with that desire, the decision or the choice that you make when you're aroused, and the final stage is death. Verse 13, these people say we shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We will fill our houses with spoil. So they appeal to the desire of this individual to have something, to have things in his house. Now there's nothing wrong with desire. We all have it. But they're appealing to the desire. The next stage is the drawing away or the enticement, the allurement. Verse 10, If sinners entice you, now the bait is dangled before their eyes. The desires are aroused. The third stage is the decision stage. That's also implied in verse 10, where it says, When they entice you, or if they entice you, do not consent. You have a choice to make at that moment. And then the final stage is death in verse 18 and 19. Now, I want you to... Keep a marker here and go right for a long time. Turn to the New Testament book of James. James chapter 1 speaks about temptation and follows the same anatomical order. Breaks down temptation so that we can look at it to know what stage we're in. 
James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed, or oh, how happy is the man who endures temptation. You say, what? Oh, how happy is the man? Yes, not that has temptation, that endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Wasn't that a beautiful promise? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now let's take these step by step. First of all, desire. It says in verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Each one of us has desires. They are natural. They are normal. They are God-given desires. There's nothing wrong with them. Your desire isn't sinful in and of itself. It depends what you do with that desire. But we need them. If you never had a desire to eat, if you never had hunger, you wouldn't survive. If you never had a desire to drink, to satisfy thirst, you'd die. If you never had a sexual desire, there wouldn't be a human race. These are God-given desires. But that which is God-given must be God-governed. Now, this is where temptation comes in. It seeks to come and play off of the natural desires that you and I have, but offer us a shortcut to fulfill those desires. God says, I know what you desire. I know what you need before you ask. I put those desires within you. And now I want to govern those God-given desires. And I want you to be fulfilled. And here's the path for fulfillment. Temptation comes along and underlying every temptation is the promise to fulfill your desires via a shortcut. The enemy will knock on the door and say, Hey, listen, you don't have to go God's way. I know what you want. I know what your desire is. You can find fulfillment now. Here's a shortcut. Have it now. And so Jesus being tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness... He had come to redeem the world by His blood. And Satan knew it and effectively said, Why go the way of the cross? That's the hard way. You come for the world, bow and worship Me now, and you can have it all. A shortcut for fulfillment. And so you're in class, and it's time to take an examination. Is it wrong to pass the exam? Not at all. That's why you're there. But it's wrong to cheat in order to pass the exam. That'd be a shortcut. And it would be not right. Or you desire food. Is it wrong to eat? It's right to eat. But if you steal to eat rather than work to eat, it's wrong. And so you have a sexual desire. Is that wrong? No. God invented it. But if you decide, I'm not going to wait for the right one that God wants to give me. I want pleasure now. It's wrong. It's sinful. First is desire. Next, verse 14, comes 
the enticement or the drawing away. You've got a natural desire. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The word drawn away literally means to lead an animal from safety into a trap. To lead an animal from safety into a trap. It is a term that comes from the world of hunting. Next, the word enticed comes from the world of fishing. Literally means to bait a hook. You don't throw a hook into the water. Usually, uh, the fish aren't usually that dumb. You want to put something enticing on it. You want to cover it with bait. So that the fish will say, hey, you know what? Uh, I've been looking a long time for a big chunk of food that big. I'll go for this one. It's just sitting right here in the water. But you'll cover the hook with a piece of bait. Hunters and fishermen use bait to attract their prey from a place of safety to a place where they can get snagged. The idea is to take the desire, to exploit the desire, to kind of get you, yeah, 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 and then have something that you can't see underneath it, a hook. I was reading about a spider from South America that is phosphorescent. And it emits little beams of light. And the moth sees it and is dazed, dazzled by that little gleam of light. And each time would go a little bit further to investigate and a little bit further, moving closer and closer to its own assassin. So bright, so beautiful. I'm drawn by it. I have a desire to be around that light. And finally it's snagged. That's how temptation works, by successive bits of Satan's radiation. He dazzles you and exploits the desire that you have. It's attractive, but what's underneath it? That's where the temptation comes in. Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, it says that he looked out and he saw the plains of Jordan. They were well watered, looked beautiful and lush, and that's where he wanted to live. He said, man, that looks awesome. That's where I want to be. That was the bait. It looked green, it looked lush, it looked beautiful. What he didn't see underneath the hook was the lifestyle of the Sodomites and those that lived in Gomorrah. That God was going to judge it. And that he would compromise his lifestyle by moving in that direction. David looked out one night. He couldn't help it, but there was this beautiful gal bathing named Bathsheba. And uh, the first look he couldn't help, but that second take... He could, and he watched, and he lusted. He took the bait, the bait that was dangled. She was a beautiful woman, but he didn't see the hook underneath it. The adultery, the death of Uriah, the judgment that would fall upon his house. The bait is the distraction. It catches you off guard. That's the whole idea. Um, If a little child is playing with something you don't want him to play with, say a toy, you just want to get the toy away, or you think it's bad for him, you want, to rip, you want to get the toy away. How do you do it? Well, you could just say, give it to me, rip it out of his hands. And you'll have a screaming child for about two hours. What parents most often will do is find something else and say, hey, look at this. And then all of a sudden the child is distracted by another toy. And while he's playing with that new distraction, you take the old one away. It's exactly what the enemy does. He will distract you from your love of God. He'll get you to look at something else and be dazzled by it and play with it. Ooh, that's shiny. But there's a hook underneath. 
And so that brings us to the third phase of temptation, choice, decision. Look at verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, how is desire conceived? It's conceived by deciding. You see the bait, you say, okay, I'll go for it. When it's conceived, the choice is made, the bait is taken. Proverbs chapter 1 said, When that happens, my son, don't consent. Don't grab it. In verse 15 of James 1, the word conceived means literally spawn. Again, it's an animal term. And I think it's fascinating that James, when writing of temptation, uses words like bait a hook, set a trap, spawn, which is an animal word, not a human word. He's using all sorts of animal terms. And I think there's a reason for it. I think it's because a person who is constantly living on the level of fulfilling his senses, being a sensual-oriented being only, living for the flesh, yielding to temptation, is living on the level of an animal. Well, I get what I want whenever I want it. Really? That's what animals do. An animal's hungry, goes eat. Hunts. An animal is feeling a sexual urge, gets it satisfied. It lives by its instinct. It lives on the level of its senses. And so to be constantly yielding to temptation, you are living on the level of an animal. Interesting, our children are being taught in school that they evolved from monkeys. All you are is a biological animal. And we tell them that in school, and then we're appalled when they start acting like animals. Look at them, they're acting like animals. Well, you've told them they're animals for so long. What do you expect? You told them great-grandpa's a monkey. And now he's acting like who you said his great-grandpa is, and you're appalled. You're not an animal. God has some higher level for you to live on. Not for sin to be spawned, conceived, and you to be baited away. An example of how temptation works and how desire plays into it is with a piano. If you were to lift the lid of a piano and, and press the pedal on the right at the pedal stand, which is the sustain pedal, it removes the mutes so that the strings can freely vibrate. If you push the sustain pedal and you sing a note into the piano, you call to the piano, at least one, if not more, of those notes will vibrate. You will sing a note, it will respond by singing a note back to you. Usually the note or a harmony which you sang into it. That's how temptation works. Satan calls and we vibrate. We respond to that call. If the piano had feelings and could talk, it would say that when you push the sustain pedal and sang a note, it's turned on. Because it was meant to vibrate. It was created for the purpose of vibrating. That's what makes its music. But it was meant not to respond to a human voice. It was meant to respond to a hammer hitting against the string. It's responding to the wrong call. And so we get tempted. Satan calls. Good vibrations. It feels good. We're allured. What do you do? Close the top. You have a choice at that moment to grab the bait, to play into his trap, or to close the lid. You still have a choice. Martin Luther used to say, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. You have the choice. The final step that James mentions 
is death. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Again, Proverbs chapter 1 tells us the same thing. Verse 17, Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. The bait is dangled. The bait is grabbed. The decision is made. Sin is conceived. When it's full grown, it brings forth death. Now, at first you think, oh, hey, I got away with it. It's so small. It's just a little baby. It just got conceived. But it'll grow up. One day it will grow up. And the end result is not fulfillment, is not satisfaction, is not pleasure. That might be very temporary. The end result, when it finally grows up, is death. It's death. The first time a drug is taken, there's a sensation of pleasure, fulfillment, euphoria. And then there's subsequent times. But eventually, ask the person who's addicted, Hey man, is this great? You having just a great time in life? You filled with joy and pleasure? No. I'm caught in a trap. But there's that allurement. Now, if drugs brought happiness, then you'd expect the heroin addict to be the happiest person on earth. If sex brought fulfillment, the prostitute ought to be the happiest individual running around the streets. But they're not. Because when it's full grown, it brings forth death. There's a story I came across called The Skylark's Bargain. It tells of a young skylark who one day discovered a man who would give worms in exchange for a feather. They struck a deal. The skylark would give one of its feathers for two worms from the old man. Made life a lot easier, didn't have to hunt for food. One day, the father and the son were flying through the sky, and the father said, You know, son, we skylarks ought to be the happiest birds of any of the others. Look at our brave wings that God has given us to draw us higher and higher and closer and closer to Him. But all that young skylark could focus on was the old man with the worm. So down he'd sweep, give him two feathers, and have a feast. This went on day after day, day after day, day after day, till autumn came. And when it was time for them to fly south, he had used up all of his strength that was in his wings for worms. He was snagged. He was unable to move. Begins with desire. We're drawn away. The desire is capitalized on. We make a decision. It brings forth death. Now, let's go back to Proverbs 1 and ask the second question. That's what temptation is. But the text helps us understand what I should do. When Satan calls and the strings vibrate, how do I close the lid? How do I say no to the bait? How do I not consent? There's a few things that I think are mentioned in our text. First of all, you need to be careful where you walk. You need to be careful where you walk. That is, things that you hear, things that you see, things that you do. Be careful where you walk. Look at verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path for their feet run to evil. 
Uh, go over to chapter 4 for just a moment. This is expanded upon in other Proverbs. Verse 14, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Down in verse 25, Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. The path is what leads you to temptation. The path is eventually where you'll end up face-to-face with temptation. So avoid the avenues that will bring you face-to-face with temptation. This is where the say no begins. It's the stage of the temptation where you see, if I continue on this path, I'm going to get to a place where I'm compromised, where I'm not able to make good, solid decisions, where I'll be blurred in my decision-making. So I won't even walk down that path. I think the idea here is to take control of your body. To take control of your body. The appetites of your flesh are constantly craving satisfaction. It's interesting, I found volumes of material written on the spiritual man, the inner man, the soul, the heart, the spiritual nature of the Christian, but there's not a lot written on the body, the flesh. But in the Bible there is. In Romans chapter 12, Paul said that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, don't yield the parts of your body as members of unrighteousness to do evil, but yield them to God. God, you got another set of hands today, another set of feet, another mouth. I'm yielding it all to you. I'm going to use it for your glory. The Bible also tells us in Corinthians that we are temples of God. God resides in us. We're God's house. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's the idea that we should study our bodies and know how we should possess our own bodies in sanctification and honor. How well do you know your body? How well do you know the propensities of your body, the weaknesses of your body, the things that draw you away easily so that you can stay clear and avoid that path? And there will be some cases where you see evil coming and the best thing to do is to turn right around and run to flee. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee idolatry. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, flee youthful lusts. James told us, flee the pursuit of gain and pursue righteousness. There are times when you have to run away. You say, oh, I'm not a chicken. You ought to be. You ought to be scared to death of coming face to face with a danger zone where you lose control of your body. Joseph, again, a prime example. We mentioned him last week. Potiphar's wife grabbed him and said, let's do it. Come to bed with me. He said no. One time when she was so forceful, he turned right around and ran, leaving his clothes in her hand. He'd rather lose his cloak than his integrity. He ran away. Now, he could have said, well, You know, I can handle this. I'm a big boy. Okay, I'll come in just for a cup of coffee. Yeah, I'll be a good witness here. I'll just, I want to talk about a few things. 
No, he just said, you know, I'm not going to even put myself in this position. I'll avoid the path altogether and flee. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 10, Thus says the Lord to his people, They love to wander. They have not restrained their feet. A lot of us flee temptation, but we leave a forwarding address. Here's my number. Call me later at night when nobody's around. I'll be here. We have to guard what we see. We have to guard what we hear. We have to guard what we do. Real practically, that might mean there are some stores you ought to stay out of altogether. Because let's say you have a a desire that you lose control. You just buy everything and you find yourself in huge debt and it's sinful debt. And hey, just stay out of it so that the devil won't be able to say, looks good from the back too. For some men, that means stay away from sections of stores altogether, like magazine racks, rather than walking real closely to them and going, that's bad. That's real bad. Whoa. (laughs) Stay away from it altogether. For some, that may mean when you go home in the evening, you don't take the quickest route home because it goes perhaps by a bar or a house where you were used to frequenting and it caused compromise. J. Wilbur Chapman wrote, My life is governed by this rule. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study, cramps my prayer life, or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. So, be careful where you walk. Second principle, be careful who you walk with, the crowd that you hang with. Notice in these verses the plural, the many against the one. My son, if sinners, plural, entice you, singular, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait. Let us lurk secretly. Let us swallow. It's all us against them. Now, it's one thing to be tempted by evil thoughts. It's another thing altogether to be tempted by evil people with evil thoughts. And it is often difficult for us to say no when there's so many voices around us saying, yes, be like me, do what I do, conform to my values and my standards. By the way, if you have people around that, they're not your friends. Any person who would seek to take you from the path of following God is an enemy, not a friend. If they're trying to persuade you not to love God, not to follow His commandments, that's a friend? Keep in mind that just as God uses people for His glory, Satan seeks to use people for your destruction. Do you think Jesus spoke lightly when He turned to the religious leaders who were drawing people away from Jesus? Do you think Jesus spoke lightly when He said, You are of your father the devil, and his deeds you do. The devil has his people as well, seeking to draw and entice God's people away. And so Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel." of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, the path, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God. So be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you hang with. Be careful who you choose to have as a role model. U.S. News and World Report had a little article and they said one little sentence in it. People tend to choose strong individuals as models to pattern their life after. That's the way we are. Americans are often depicted as pioneers, rugged individualists, 
I don't care what anybody thinks, I do what I want. And there are some like that. But for the most part, people follow the herd instinct. For so many, the greatest fear is to be rejected by the group that we want to be accepted by. So we'll cut our hair like they cut. We'll wear clothes like they wear. We'll say what they say. We'll do what they do. Because the most important is we want their acceptance. Rather than saying, that's bogus and I don't care what you think. And so because we're so influenced by opinions and trends and values, because we're so influenced by our peers, pick the right peers. Pick the right group of people to hang out with. And don't worry about the crowd and their opinions. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. The crowd isn't always right. Let me give you an example. There is a certain species of alligator that is very lazy, you'd think. It believes in the group concept. It believes in the crowd and herd instinct. And it will sit on the banks of the stream or the river in the sunlight with its jaws wide open. And it won't budge. And you'd think it's dead. But it's not. It just leaves its mouth open. It just perches there, not moving. And after a while, flies start gathering on the moist tongue because that's what flies do. And other insects kind of join the crowd. And after a while, the lizard will see the flies and the bugs and he'll start crawling around up there in the mouth trying to get the bugs. And then the frog will see the lizard and the other bugs too and think, oh, hey, there's a party. And they'll jump up there too. Pretty soon, you'll have a whole menagerie of all of these little critters. And the party's going full-blown until that final earthquake, wham! And the party's over. Toast, dust, history. The group instinct worked. Everybody's doing it. Let's join the crowd. (laughs) Gobbled up. Everybody has an opinion of how you ought to live. And if you're with the wrong group and you value their opinion, it'll start changing the way you live. Well, I know you bring your Bible around work here, and I just wish you wouldn't be so fanatic and so narrow-minded. You know, I've known people who've read the Bible as much as you do, and they eventually go crazy. (laughs) And I don't want you to go crazy. I value you too much. And just be open to us, and would would you just not be so narrow? So after a while, I think, oh, I won't bring my Bible. I won't even, hey, I'll skip reading it today. Okay, church, I've been at church a lot. I don't need to go to church as much. Little compromises because of the opinions of others. So get the right peer group. Somebody said Christians who move the world are Christians who don't let the world move them. So get the right group. Now, before we move on from that, that's the purpose of fellowship. We don't get together like this just for kicks, but for strength. Otherwise... We'd say, hey, go buy a tape. Go listen to the radio. You don't really need to be with people. You don't need kinship. You don't need fellowship. One of the reasons we need each other is for the strength and the unity that comes from being with each other. As I hear what God is doing in your life, you hear what God is doing in my life. We pray together. There's strength in that. Remember, as Paul talked about spiritual warfare, one of the items he said was, take on the shield of faith. I believe when he wrote that, he was talking about the unity of the body of Christ. Because the shields that he was talking about were four and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide. They were 
covered with leather, soaked with water, and they had hooks at the corners. And the hooks were meant to hook to the other hooks of the other guys. And so you would have hundreds of men linked together as one solid wall advancing against the enemy. And so when the fiery darts would come and it would be soaked up by the water that's in the leather, that wall would not be separated, but you'd have hundreds, even thousands of men marching in advance. That's how the body of Christ is to work. And one of the ways of averting temptation and saying no is strength that comes by being together as a church. Frequently. There's strength in unity. Finally, be careful when you begin. Be careful where you walk. Be careful who you walk with. Be careful when you start or when you begin. Look at verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. And if you're to read through the first nine chapters of this book, you're going to find a phrase over and over again. My son, my son, my son. You know why? It's a dad teaching his son how to do it right. It's a father who has taken his son early on in life and trained that child with godly wisdom and godly principles. Victory over temptation begins when you're young. It begins by parents teaching their children what is right. I found a study that said that if both mom and dad attend church regularly, 72% of their children remain faithful. If dad is the one who is faithful and attends regularly, but mom doesn't. 55% remain faithful. If only mom and not dad, 15% remain faithful. If neither attends regularly, only 6% remain faithful. The message is clear. The example of parents far outstrips what any Sunday school or church or Christian school can do. That's why it's wrong to say, well, here's my kids. Do something with them. You're a church. You're a Christian school. No, you're a parent. And the influence that is exerted above all the other institutions comes at home. And so it is with temptation. You know the impact that a kid has when he sees or she sees her parent constantly close the lid of the piano, constantly says no to temptation. Well, mom and dad, I always watch them. When they were tempted by this, I watched how they said no. I watched the habits of their life. What a dramatic impact. Begins when they're young. A young man was being ordained to the ministry. As he was receiving his ordination, he said, I have something to confess why I'm here today. There was a time in my life when I was almost an unbeliever. I didn't believe in God almost. But he went on to say, There was one argument in favor of Christianity which I could never refute, the consistent conduct of my father. Satan will knock. Satan will dazzle you with allurements like that little spider. And you'll be dazzled and taken off guard. Satan will exploit sinful tendencies. He will look at you from the front and from the back and say, Man, do you look good. Learn now to close the piano lid. Learn now to say, I don't want the bait. I know it's underneath. Teach your children now, parents. Young Christians, begin now. Laying the track of saying no at the right stage 
so that you'll be able to stand strong. As David said, once again, I have restrained my feet from evil that I might keep your word. Let's pray. Father, you have given us the power to say no. As your word says, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And with that temptation, you will provide a way of escape from it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, especially as parents, to start young by exemplifying saying no to the right things so that by precept, as well as by example, our kids would know what to do. For we know, Lord, that people follow footsteps a lot easier than advice. Thank you, Lord, for the insight provided in your word. May we be a strong army with our shields locked together, advancing on enemy territory, quenching the fiery darts of the wicked one. In Jesus' name, amen.